MSW Media. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk Podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers, leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and this is episode three of the series on the book Corruptible by Brian Kloss. Last week, we covered the introduction, part one and part two, the evolution of power. We ended last week with this quote, we need to figure out why corruptible people tend to seek power. Improbably, the solution to the puzzle lies with a statistician from World War II, the daughter of a cannibal emperor, some hyenas, and a power-hungry flamingo-obsessed president of a homeowners association in Arizona. So let's dig in with part three called Moths to a Flame on page 37, meaning who is drawn to power, right? The first section is called Airplanes and Cavemen, and Kloss opens with a quote from The Restaurant at the End of the Universe by Douglas Adams, one of my favorite authors, and the quote goes like this, quote, it's a well-known fact that those people who want most to rule people are, ipso facto, those least suited to do it. Anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job, unquote. And we begin with the mention of that World War II statistician. His name is Abraham Wald. He was working uh, at the Austrian Institute of Economic Research when the Nazis invaded in 1938. And they didn't really see him as a statistician. They saw him as the grandson of a rabbi and the son of a kosher baker. So Wald fled persecution to the United States and ended up a professor at Columbia. He became part of a secret group of 18 statisticians at Columbia dedicated to basically moneyballing an allied victory for the military. And the stuff they would recommend would actually happen. Things like loading fighter planes, machine guns differently, or tweaking fuses on artillery shells. Now, one of the problems the military brought to them, this group of 18 statisticians, was how to armor their fighter planes based on bullet hole patterns. The bullets were mostly hitting the wings and the tail and the fuselage of the plane. 
Too much armor would weigh the plane down. Not enough would mean dead pilots. But Wald saw something the generals didn't. He thought about the planes they couldn't show them because they didn't make it home. The planes that were actually shot down. And those were the ones shot in the nose where the engine was. Those were the planes that mattered, the ones they couldn't study because they didn't return. And he advised the military to reinforce the engine block. And that's what they did. And Walt helped win the war with that group of 18 other people. And this is called survivorship bias, which is, quote, a subset of the statistical concept of selection bias, unquote. Basically, you have to study all the things, not just the ones that survive. This is also known as the caveman effect, that we all believe cavemen lived in caves because they painted in caves. And those are the paintings that survived, not necessarily maybe the paintings on trees outside. So what the frick does this have to do with why corruptible people seek power? And here is where Brian Kloss asks you to consider your boss or the president of the United States. In order to discern why that person is in charge, Kloss says, we have to consider three levels of survivorship bias. The first level is who wants to be the boss. And to fully answer that question, we have to think about who doesn't right? Now, the second consideration is who gets power. The survivors in this level are the ones who actually get to be the boss. Whether the system is rigged or they're better at climbing the ladder, we have to, about, we have to think about those who didn't get to become the boss, those who tried and failed. And finally, who stays in power? And this is where we can think about Trump, who isn't mentioned in this book, but keep him in mind as I read this passage. Quote, plenty of people are a bit like Icarus. They soar too high only to get burned and plummet back to earth. The leaders we focus on tend to be the ones that hang on to power for enough time to wield it with impact. Ever heard of Pedro Lascurian? I hadn't either. That makes sense because he holds the dubious title of the shortest reigning president in history, ruling Mexico for roughly 15 minutes during a 1913 coup d'etat. Those who get power but lose it or leave it are like the paintings done by cavemen on trees. They disappear, unquote. So if we only consider those who seek, get, and hold power, we misunderstand the problem, right? That survivorship bias. And if we don't understand the problem, we can't solve it. In our dreams, only what Kloss refers to as the incorruptible would be in positions of authority, and what he refers to as the corruptibles would have no power at all. So if the goal is to make sure incorruptibles seek, get, and hold power while blocking the corruptibles from doing the same, we need to start with who seeks power. And that brings us to a section called The Cannibal Emperor and Hyena Hierarchies. And that's on page 41 in the hardback edition. Klaus begins with the idea that those who pursue power aren't random because of a form of self-selection bias. An everyday example of this is that tall kids are the ones who tend to try out for basketball teams. So basketball teams aren't a random represent, representative sample of a population. And that's the same with those who pursue power. And further, he says too much attention is paid to whether power corrupts and not enough attention is paid to the fact that corruptible people seek it. In 2019, Klaus met with Marie-France Bocassa in Paris. She's the daughter of a tyrant and a monster named Jean Bedel Bocassa. He was the emperor of the Central African Empire. And though the country was destitute and the average person in the country made just $282 per year in 1977 when he took power, he had a coronation modeled after Napoleon, where he wore lavish robes and a crown with an 80-carat diamond in it. His throne cost $3 million bucks. His crown and scepter were $5 million. The entire coronation ceremony cost $22 million, which is about a quarter of the government's entire annual budget. And by 1979, a couple years later, 
The French, the former colonial power, decided he was ridiculous and had to go. So they sent a small deployment of troops, uh, deposed him, and installed their chosen successor. In the palace, they found an obscene amount of gold and jewels he'd stolen from the people and a pond full of crocodiles. And when they drained the pond, they were shocked to discover the bones of about 30 people he'd fed to the crocs. As it turns out, the crocodiles weren't the only ones eating Bokasa's enemies. They found carved up bodies in his refrigerator that he was said to have fed to unwitting visiting dignitaries. Was that monstrousness encoded in his DNA? Since he died in 1996 and Kloss couldn't interview him, he decided to go for the next best thing and speak to his daughter. Marie France had fared better than most of his other kids, Bokasa's other kids. Uh, and he had at least 57, by the way, born to 17 official wives and perhaps more from unofficial wives. Most of them lived in France. Two had been jailed for drugs or fraud, three for shoplifting. And one named Charlemagne was a beggar at a metro station. He was found dead at the age of 31. Now, you might expect she'd be ashamed of her heritage, her monstrous father, but she was actually proud to be a Bacasa. She seemed to suffer from a variant of Stockholm syndrome in that respect. She and her father's childhood taught him you have to be hard and strong, and that he had a catastrophic childhood that created sort of an underlying fragility. But despite all that, she says she didn't believe power corrupted him. And even if that's true, Klaus says there's no denying he couldn't resist the draw of power. And that's, quote, something because something in him caused him to crave control over others. Klaus also wondered if Marie France inherited that draw to authority. Marie France now runs a tea room, near the former Bocasa Palace outside Paris, and over a glass of wine, she was lovely and charming, but it was impossible not to consider a disturbing possibility. Under the right circumstances, could she become someone who wouldn't serve people tea, but would instead serve people with tea? She told Klaas um, she thought a Bocasa would again rule the Central African Republic, and when he asked, could that be you? She smiled and said she wouldn't rule it out. And here, Klaus brings up the Minnesota Twin Study, where researchers compared identical twins with fraternal twins. They mapped genomes of hundreds of twins and then had each individual list any leadership roles they had. They found that a whopping 30% of the variation between individuals could be explained by genes. And that raised another question. Could some bit of DNA determine whether we are born to lead or born to follow? A researcher named Jan Emanuel Deneve, or maybe Jan, I'm not sure, the soft J, yogging. Uh, he's at the University College of London. He wanted to find this out by attempting to isolate the genetic code associated with leaders. And in 2013, his team announced the discovery of a leadership gene, RS4950, a bit of genetic code that's strongly correlated with people ending up in leadership positions. And Klaus wonders if Deneve was right. Could we insert a little something into people to make them want to be leaders? But not so fast, he says. The findings here were overstated and misleading. Quote, if you tried to find a statistical correlation between genes and current leaders, say, in the United States, the two most prominent genetic factors would be having a Y chromosome, being a man, and being white. That's not because they're good leaders or destined to be. It's because white men get into power more often than other types of people. So that doesn't answer any questions about who seeks power. So Deneb's team adjusted the data to take demographic characteristics into account and still found the RS4950 snippet is correlated with holding leadership positions. But that could be for all kinds of reasons, right? There's all sorts of variables here. It could be tied to traits about looks or height or being an extrovert. And that's not even taking into account the paths of power and how none of those are always equal. 
So then we're kind of back to square one about who seeks power as opposed to who tends to get it. But despite all the variables and caveats, there's a good reason to believe that genetics plays a role in human dominance as evidenced in the animal kingdom. Enter the spotted hyenas he talked about, and rats and mice as well. Klaus points out that if a spotted hyena mom has a certain stature in the pack, her kids are likely to have that same stature and place when they grow up. And in lab rats, when researchers bred dominant rats with other dominant rats and submissive rats with other submissive rats, their selectively bred rat grandchildren were either super dom or super sub. And in mice, when scientists removed a gene of interest, the mice would become submissive regardless of their parents' dominant status. So all of that shows that genes definitely impact who gets power, but we still aren't sure whether genes affect who wants power in the first place. We know that some humans definitely don't want power. And uh, in a recent survey in corporations, it shows just 34% of respondents actually aspire to leadership positions. And the hardest charging 7% have varying reasons for wanting power. Some wanted to actually serve their community and do good things. Some wanted recognition. Some wanted to uh, dominate or abuse others for gratification. Some wanted prestige. And the question of which is which goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks before genes. We, we know, well, we, there were genes. We just didn't study them. And uh, discussions about thymos or the need for recognition. And more recently, David McClellan, a psychologist at Harvard, developed a measure called NPOW, N-P-O-W, or the need for power. And another researcher proposed a measure called Social Dominance Orientation, SDO. But Klaus says we still don't have all the answers. And putting all that aside, can we as a society make it more or less likely that good people will seek power? And that brings us to the section from, uh, it's called From Maori Teens to M113s. And Klaus notes that police reform came front and center after the tragic murder of George Floyd. And the problem with key reform efforts um, they're making the same error that the generals made when considering how to reinforce fighter planes based on the planes that returned, right? We aren't considering the invisible would-be police officers who we don't have. And instead, we're focusing on altering the behavior of current officers. And Kloss talks about a small-town police department recruiting video that uh, he and I discussed in episode one. Let me read that description on page 50. It says, a few years ago, anyone considering putting on a badge with the Doraville PD was greeted with a recruitment video on the department's website. For 15 seconds, a logo flashes on screen, a menacing skull set against a black background. It's a reference to The Punisher, a comic book vigilante who uses murder, kidnapping, and torture to punish criminals. Then, the armored battle cruiser, emblazoned with SWAT Doraville Police Department, screams into view at top speed. It's treads kicking up dirt. A hatch opens. A shadowy figure tosses a smoke grenade out. Six men dressed like soldiers emerge from the vehicle. They're wearing camouflage, ready to blend in should they be deployed to the concrete jungle next to the shaking crawfish restaurant, or if they need to impose martial law at marshals. <laughs> Their assault weapons are drawn. The Punisher logo flashes again, followed by the image of an eagle carrying a lightning bolt in one talon and a gun in the other, the insignia of SWAT operators. Mission accomplished. The soldiers' cops return to their combat vehicle. The M113 drives off, and the whole spectacle is set to the dulcet tones of Die, Motherfucker, Die by Dope. So, what kind of people are they attracting here? Likely not those who want to help old ladies cross the street or serve their community honorably. So it's not about who gets the job, but what kind of people apply in the first place and why they're driven to do so. 
Now, as a personal aside, this isn't in the book, but it seems to me this is why it's so important we hold accountable those who try to obstruct justice and overthrow the government. Because a lack of accountability, as I discussed with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, is a message to future power-hungry dicks that they can be lawless and face no consequences. Anyhow, back to the book, where Kloss tells us about the 1033 program, which is a government program designed to deal with excess military equipment. And he goes over several examples of tiny police departments, like this one that put out that commercial, a recruitment video, that have M113, M113s, tanks, Humvees, mine detectors, armored amphibious assault boats, and the like. And he says, quote, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have a police tank, even Walmart looks like a battlefield, and that changes who tries to put on the uniform, unquote. The former assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in London says, quote, if you're a bully, a bigot, or a sexual predator, policing is a really attractive career choice. She told Kloss that the challenge for the establishment is to try to weed out those people in the recruitment process. Quote, 6% of Americans have served in the military, but 19% of American cops are ex-soldiers, according to a, the Marshall Project. More interestingly, Kloss shares data showing that this effect is most pronounced in departments that make policing feel like the military. Departments that got the most surplus military gear killed more civilians to, be, to begin with and saw the numbers of civilians killed in a given year go up significantly after the gear arrived. Now, as another aside, not in the book here, this reminds me of a quote from Adama in Battlestar Galactica. He said, there's a reason you separate the military and the police. One fights the enemy of the state. The other serves and protects the people. When the military becomes both, the enemies of the state tend to become the people. Now, despite all that information and logic, uh, police reform uh, seems centered around changing police tactics. So we're spending millions to try to retrain the small group of overly aggressive officers instead of doing what New Zealand is doing. And here's a recruitment video description for New Zealand. An Asian woman wearing a police vest sprints up a hill following an unseen suspect. She turns to the camera, quote, New Zealand police are looking for new recruits who can make a real difference. Then there's a quick cut to an indigenous Maori police officer in hot pursuit of the same suspect. Quote, those who care about others and their communities. Unquote. The Maori officer sprints up past an elderly man with a walker slowly traversing a zebra crossing. The officer does a double take and then returns to help the old man safely cross the street. For more than two minutes, the chase continues of the unseen suspect. And finally, a female officer catches up to the perpetrator. Drop it, she shouts and the at the suspect. And then a dog barks, revealing itself as the canine criminal. It opens its mouth and relinquishes the stolen handbag from its teeth. The entire hot pursuit has been of a fluffy border collie. And then it says, do you care enough to be a cop? That logo flashes on the screen. In another video, New Zealand sent a young boy out to look for food in the garbage and watched as some people ignored him, walked right by, but others stopped to help. And those are the people that were highlighted in the video with the tagline, do you care enough to be a cop? Inferring that those who are compassionate should be the ones in uniform. And it worked. Applications in the past few years are up 24%. The number of female applicants rose 29%, and Maori applicants are up 32%. The force is close to being representative of New Zealand's ethnic breakdown. Let's compare that to the United States, where on average, major police departments are 30% whiter than the communities they patrol. Like Wald and the planes from World War II he considered that didn't make it home, New Zealand focused on who wasn't applying to be a cop. And that brings us to the flamingo-obsessed Arizona Homeowners Association tees from earlier in the chapter. 
1970, only about a million Americans lived in communities with homeowners associations. Today, it's 40 million. 70 million total if you add condo boards. So who wants to be the hall monitor that patrols neighborhoods and reports their neighbors for tiny infractions? But apparently not a lot of people. In Roger Torres' small Arizona community, and that's not his real name, by the way, there wasn't much competition for that job. Everyone was apathetic about it. Nobody wanted it. Those who did serve on the Homeowners Association were often roped into it because somebody had to do it. That's until Martin McFife, also not his real name, came along, and he saw serving on the HOA as a calling and not a burden. He ran unopposed in the HOA election, but because he was such an insufferable asshole, nobody wanted to work with him. Many other board members retired when their re-elections came up, and Roger Torres thinks that was by design. McFife was being a dick to get rid of him to consolidate power. Now, one morning, Torres was in a hurry leaving his house, and he put his trash can out five minutes before it was allowed, 11.55 a.m. instead of noon, and he was immediately fined by McFife. And then every time he challenged the fines, more were tacked on. Roger's palm trees were suddenly deemed a violation because one of the fronds looked like it might be dying. Bam, another fine. Torres complained in a letter that the rules were being arbitrarily applied to him. And uh, that's when he got a letter in the mail with an entirely new HOA handbook with ridiculous rules like any gravel has to be native to Arizona and no security cameras allowed. Rules that were pretty much specifically aimed at Torres, who had non-native gravel and security cameras. Another rule was that rocks larger than a softball must be buried up to one-third in their height. And when Torres didn't correct his big rocks being buried properly, they started disappearing. So in protest, Torres put a pink flamingo in his yard because he knew it would drive McFive crazy. And it caught on. Soon, a bunch of his neighbors did the same. Flocks of pink flamingos in their front yards. And McFive started sending out important HOA update letters, calling out the Torreses by name and asking, are they really good, considerate neighbors? One even ended with, quote, the stakes are high. Time is of the essence. And then the Torreses used McFive's rulebook against him. They invoked a little known bylaw to force a recall election. McFive was booted and he was incensed and he started patrolling the neighborhood on his own, taking pictures of things he didn't like. And in the next election, he only received three votes. Torres eventually sold his house and vowed to never live in a place with an HOA ever again. Quote, whether it's a trigger-happy police officer or a power-hungry tyrant in a homeowners association, power tends to draw people in who want to control others for the sake of it. Unquote. And it's not just about attracting different applicants, but also attracting more of them. Quote, because when there's no competition, when whoever reaches the flame, like moths to a flame, first gets to control others, well, then you're more likely to be stuck with a power-hungry tyrant obsessed with palm fronds and haunted by flamingos, unquote. And with those final words of the chapter, I'm reminded of Marjorie Three Names, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who ran unopposed for her house seat. She did have a Dem comp competitor, a Democrat that was running against her, but he mysteriously dropped out and he did it too close to the election to be replaced by another Dem contender. Very curious. All right, join us next week for the next couple of chapters, starting with part four, The Power Delusion. Also out today is Muller She Wrote with my special guest, Pete Strzok. You want to check that out. And of course, I will see you all tomorrow morning for the Daily Beans pod. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. 
Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter. And our art and web designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.